three, two, one, go. everybody to the tribe of the fours podcast the podcast from three puerto rican friends coming together to do deep dives into star wars and other nerd related media today we have another very special episode i know so many goodies we don't have we don't have regular episodes so much anymore but we do have (laughs) special episodes so this is a good trade-off i guess So we were lucky enough to be invited to another roundtable involving the show that we've been only been a smidge obsessed with a smidge, lately. Just a smidge. A smidge. It's and interesting because you look at our you look at our Instagram <laughs> and every single post I think for the last couple of months everything everything is orange and red because everything is just Andor. It's Andor, but it's so it's good. good. They it's deserve good. the attention, honestly. So. Today, we got to speak to Bo Williman, the writer of episodes eight, nine, and 10, which, wow, Ooh. what an arc it has been. Not to, Ooh. you know, say anything bad about the other writers, because there has been amazing, amazing. writing throughout, yeah. but this arc has been exceptional. Mm-hmm. We have executive producer, Sana Wahlberg. We yep. have production designer, Luke Hall, and costume designer, Michael Wilkinson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not, not yes, yeah, yeah. Just a couple, just you know. a couple, uh, just a couple, like uh, you know, lightweights. No, no, no. These are, these are, no. these are Legit. amazing people. Excuse me. These are amazing people that we were able to talk with, and it's so. It's like every time we get this opportunity, <laughs> just always. I always take a moment to like look, like take a take a step back and be like so thankful because I'm so humbled that we've been able to be participate in such an amazing experience and talk to like all these like wonderful, wonderful, wonderful creators that are, you know, crafting these worlds that we're living in every week and like, you know, really thriving in terms of like the conversations that we're engaging with, not just, you know, you and I, but with our other friends and fandom right. and, mm-hmm. and, you know, expanding the world of Star Wars. So it's so, so, so much fun. Uh, but it was a round table, so we can't, we can't, we can't be too greedy here and say <laughs> yeah. that we can't say that it's just us talking to these, these uh, mm-hmm. amazing, amazing, amazing uh, creators here that have been you know doing the work with tony gilroy to give us the the gift that is andor so we have to give credit where credit's due we were uh with a bunch of other friends uh some who we've participated in other round tales before some with whom we haven't some friends who we've met in real life other friends who we've yet to meet hopefully like in next celebration or something but among them our great great friend chase that gay jedi we have the tatooine sons we have alex from star wars explained uh, we have the Sky Talkers, uh, Pink Brian from Pink Milk was there. We have the Friends of the Force. We have Blast Points, uh, Acto Radio, Jedi News, uh, around uh, Pete from Around the Galaxy, uh, Talking Bay ninety four, Fanta Tracks, and our very good friend Alden Diaz from Acto Radio, which I already mentioned, and Nikki, who's there doing uh, <laughs> his Rebels rewatch as well. But yeah, it's a uh, it's fun. It's interesting, obviously. I would prefer if it's just like you and I, Nani, right? You just like I know, be very selfish and, and hey, talk with these people. We cannot complain. But we cannot complain, true. Because no. it, it, it would be really nice to just talk with these creators individually. Yeah. But I will admit that it's kind of fun to be in these roundtables to kind of see how these other creators, I mean, other content creators, podcasters, yeah. and YouTubers approach questions. 
because uh, like they're th looking at things critically from other points of view that maybe we aren't. Yeah. And, and what's important to everybody, not certain things are important to the same people. So it's it's nice to see mm -hmm, how mm -hmm. the angles from which people come into a series like this and, and all the different things that maybe you didn't thought was a big deal. And then mm -hmm. somebody asked the question about it, it's like, ooh, and these people are so, you know, enlightening about the process. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so it's incredibly amazing to be a part of it. So, yeah, I know 100%. I totally agree. And like have these two pairings, because like you mentioned that we have Bo Willem and Sana, and then we have, they were, they were paired. That was a, a group mm -hmm. of creators that we were uh, on the round table with. And then the second, there was a second pair, which was Luke and uh, Luke Cole and Michael Wilkinson, which were like designers. So it's kind of like really cool to like have those pairings because they're like two different behind the scenes uh, entities, yeah. right? One are like in the more macro sense of like building the, 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 world so to speak. building the architecture world architecture and then the and other ones are designing the world so it's just like you know how yep. th those different points of view and like the creation of andor so it's like really fun you know to see to see how those paths kind of converge into the product right that we see every wednesday uh, on disney plus and to, to, to such great success because this is like living like i don't know about you but i really lived for special edition dvds Back oh, in the yeah. day. Oh yeah. Like definitely like I, all the behind the scenes yeah. and the deleted scenes and all of that was I yeah. loved. Yeah. Like seeing those uh like especially like the Lord of the Ring. Even I have the Star Wars ones too were amazing. Like yeah. I don't know yeah. all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but like that second DVD with like all the bonus features and all the behind the scenes interviews oh, yeah. and all that crap. And, and to an extent, we're living that. So it's kind of like, wait, are we? Are we? Are we? We don't even have to wait for the special edition. We're having the right. conversation we with are, the actual creators. <laughs> we we are the we are the second disc in the special edition DVD. Maybe that should be well, a tagline now. Uh. <laughs> we are the special features DVD. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but the force, anyway, the special features. Uh. <laughs> we should stop boring people with you know. Right, us. they don't want to listen to us. Yeah. Yeah, we want to hear how these interviews went, all the interesting questions that our other podcasting friends asked, and ooh, how these people talk to us about Ander and how they're so excited about this mm -hmm. project and and the fact that we ourselves are enjoying it so much and to see mm -hmm. the creators themselves be as invested as they are, I think has been extra special about a series like this. So I'm going to be really sad when it's done, but we get another season. So That's there's true. no need to fret. That is true. <laughs> so I think that without further ado, here are the interviews. Here are the interviews. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Gustavo from Trial of the Force. Very excited to talk to you guys. Uh, so my question is for both of you. Uh, Andor so far has been a very precise and deliberate show. Uh, the pacing has been very intentional until we get like these moments that just hit you like a sledgehammer. Especially episode 10, we get a line from Luthen towards the end of the episode where he says, I've made my mind a sunless place. I share my dreams with ghosts like moments like that just like really capture what the feeling and and theming of the episode is and the series as a whole so my question is like how do these moments come about like how do we decide what characters kind of have like these moments that just like just punch you in the face and just like make your jaw drop i don't know it's it's uh, it's it's like sort of like asking uh you know uh professional ice skater like you know how, how do you do how do you how do you do like a triple lots i <laughs> a lot of practice and a lot of falling down <laughs> until you get it right <laughs> um 
I, I, I mean, first and foremost, it all starts with Tony Gilroy. Uh, he walked into the writer's room with uh, about an 80-page Bible, a very extensive and detailed idea of what he wanted to do over the course of the season. There were some big gaps along the way, which he admitted that we needed to figure out, and um, and 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 some things that he brought in that we ultimately tossed and and came up with better, I hope, better ideas for. Uh, but he started with a very clear vision, and and characters like Gluth and Rail, for instance, or Cyril and Deirdre, um, and and some of the others along the way. Uh, pretty fully formed, you know, and and so Dan, what Danny and I were trying to do was uh, just help flesh that out, deepen it, ask questions, poke holes, um, see if we could replace really good ideas with even better ones, um, you know. Uh, but 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 Tony's vision and leadership really gave us a, a running start. Uh, you know, when you talk about something like Kino Lloyd's uh, uh, arc over the course of these three seasons, we, the the notion of a prison was a pretty vague one. We knew that, okay, here's a guy who's just done the Aldani raid. Now he's on the run. Naturally, it's most interesting if something stops him being on the run. What's the most extreme version of that being thrown into a prison? Uh, how do we do a prison that isn't like every other prison movie you've ever seen in your life? Uh, it started almost from a very rudimentary place of where, of, well, most prisons are sort of dark and damp and lots of shadows and dirty. What if this one's like super bright and clean? You know, if most prisons have lots of guards, what does a prison look like that has a very few guards? How do you pull that off? Um, maybe they're maybe it's a factory. Maybe they're building something. Who knows? And 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 Kino is a character that we developed in the room from scratch. Uh, and and you know layer by layer. First, it's like, well, maybe he's a foreman. Maybe he buys into the system. Maybe maybe Cassian has to convince this guy in order to have a chance of getting out. And maybe now he becomes this opportunity for a mini arc where you see how over a very short amount of time someone can go from plugging into the system as a sort of automaton into becoming a rebel, which is part and parcel of the larger story that we're trying to tell of Cassian. And and so you you kind of just almost approach it in these very rudimentary, simple ways, layer up, you know, one, one, uh, you know, you're learning sort of, I don't, I don't know why I brought up ice skater analogy, because I know nothing about ice skating. Um, but, but, you know, you, you got to do one twirl yeah, before you do two, and then three, and, and eventually you, you, you hit something, and you land it, and you feel like that feels right, you know, so. Um, hello. Um, I wanted to bring up something, Bo, that you mentioned at your BAFTA screenwriters lecture, because I've studied and worked in theater my whole life. And in that talk, you mentioned how discoveries made in earlier episodes can have an influence and ripple effect on scripts that are still in development, much like a theatrical production process. So for either of you, have there been any standout moments like these while you while you both were working on Andor, like any moments that you revisited or rediscovered while writing that were influenced from earlier scenes or earlier episodes that you may have worked on? I think San is better for this one because she's been in the trenches with Tony since before I arrived and, and long after I, <laughs> I finished my last draft on the script. Uh, so you've, you've witnessed everything, San. I think, I think, you know, certainly for all the, you know, really strong vision and kind of over, you know, and kind of overriding kind of story arc, you know, that Tony brought into the room and that were then fleshed out with the help of his, you know, trusted collaborators, you know, um, Bo and, and Dan, you know, as and then you know whatever whatever wherever we took it at the writers' room, of course, then the really hard work starts because then everybody took these episodes away and then the, you know made them into you know you know an outline and then of course right really digging deep to writing the script and I think 
you know, things evolve and you really dig deep for, you know, the finding the broader, you know, of a path is, you know, and getting that right is, you know, was kind of quite, you know, dynamically and quickly achieved when you have, you know, three very strong, you know, creative, you know, people in a room, you know, that really know and trust each other. And, you know, the speed that was actually in the, and the, the creative feeding of each other was kind of really fast. But then when everybody dug in deeper, of course, you come across other questions and, and new things. And they constantly feed back and forward and, and, and you know, and good ideas. Then, you know, then you feed them back, you know, backwards. And I think that is a, that evolving thing when you strive for perfection and finding a very intricate you know, multi-layered, you know, piece with a huge, you know, with a lot of players within the way. I think that is very much part of the process. And and if you pay attention to that and really benefit from what you find and keep on challenging, you know, the own process, you come, you know, hopefully, you know, you get to something very, you know, complex and multi-layered and rewarding at the end. And I, I think I got lucky too, because, uh, the, Nate, the prison is such a big build, and Sana actually had to make that happen with Luke. Uh, that I believe the prison block was shot last, right, Sana? It was, it was shot last because we were quite contained and it seemed the right way, um, you know, to kind of finish the whole show. But it also really allowed, you know, for bow writing, when you're dealing with something, with anything that you could write, and when you dug deeper into it, when you were left with actually having to produce the scripts, we had to create and Luke was our designer and you had to you know if it's a constant feeding back okay if I get to go that corner and how does I do this and how would this work in the prison and it's a constantly evolving thing and having that time for that very specific world to to kind of evolve and you know to be written and for us to be then allowed to you know able to create it it was a good place at the you know to shoot it last <laughs> yeah well and, and so I you know I'm lucky that it benefited from uh, this incredible cast that now had months working together, Sana and Luke and everyone else. Uh, they, you know, here, here was, I, I basically got to benefit from this is the the final push here. And in a way, I guess all of those prisoners escaping Narkina 5 at the end, it was also for all of you, like, we're finally wrapping production. <laughs> One way out. <laughs> One way out. <laughs> you printed t-shirts for everybody with it on. Hi, uh, I'm Sam with Tatooine Sons. First, episode 10 uh, is an absolute masterpiece. I think we can all agree with that. Um, and Andy Serkis's performance could easily win him an Emmy, in our opinion. Um, but I've just got a quick two-part question. First, did you have Andy Serkis in mind when uh, you wrote that speech to the prisoners? And second, when he was leading them in chanting One Way Out, as y'all were just saying, um, were you already considering the harsh reality that Kino Loy can't swim and potentially doesn't make it out of the prison himself? Great questions. And uh, I dig you guys' setup there. Like you've, you've really yeah. got the lighting in. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> um, um, great questions. Uh, when we're de developing characters, especially ones that were developed in the room from scratch, the way Kino was, uh, sometimes you might bang around like, you know, what a, what is this person like? Who might play them? And sometimes you're talking about an actor that you know might be you know from 50 years ago or something. You're you're trying to get a sense of a vibe. You're not necessarily trying to cast it in the room. Uh, wasn't thinking of Andy or any actor when uh, per se specifically like we're writing this towards this actor. Um, 
but we were definitely going for a, a particular vibe. Um, and and when uh, the, and what we did know was that we wanted to write one hell of a, a cameo arc. That this was for 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 something that a, a really great guest actor could come in and essentially kind of headline those three episodes as the face of this prison. We wanted to write a role that could attract someone amazing, and um, and so luckily for us. Uh, you know, Andy was was available and wanted to do it and felt like winning the lottery um, because we were like, if we don't get someone of, of that caliber, the, the I don't think, you know, the prison will work. You know, but also I think so, eventually, you know, when when the three scripts, you know, were kind of, you know, all there and had just, you know, evolved it, he really became somebody that I think we all felt, you know, really drawn to, and it kind of became a natural, you know, a natural bit of casting for us. And then, you know, we were, you know, we were lucky that, you know, he felt the same about, you know, our, you know, our show and that part, and, you know, and the rest is for everybody to enjoy. In terms of the very end, I can't swim. No, I mean these are these things where you don't start with that necessarily. Uh, first is like okay what's the journey this guy has you know he he's plugged into the system he's if he's not pro empire he's kind of a shill for it for out of pure self-interest um and we okay we're gonna have a prison break at the end and he's gonna be leading the way that's quite an arc over the course of three episodes mm -hmm. but you're always looking how do you subvert expectations how or how do you uh, in a good way and replace right. them with something better how do you have the most emotional impact if there's a triumph for this guy you know is there also a tragedy uh, and I forget whether we were talking about Luthen's speech uh, first with Young or or the ending for Kino but we were very interested in the theme of sacrifice hmm. uh, and and so I mean, it's so rousing. I, I, I mean, I knew what would happen when I watched that episode again recently, episode ten, and I was still like, my pace, right. my pulse was, mm -hmm. was racing, and, uh, and and to think they finally have made it out to this place, a where we begin with three episodes, two episodes before this might be the last breath of fresh air that you ever breathe in, mm -hmm. and here they are breathing that fresh air, and there's there's freedom in front of them. Mm -hmm. It, I don't, it, I don't, I remember it was in the room and I don't remember who said it first. Maybe it was me, maybe it was Tony, but you're, you're putting yourself in the physical space of now I finally get to dive into the water and try to swim for my freedom. And I think we were trying to do just the math of like, okay, uh, how far away from the shore? Is it a mile? Is it two miles? Can these guys actually, you know, how many of them are going to make it? Are there going to be TIE fighters coming in? Like, you know, how, what does it take you an hour to swim? Is that realistic? Like we're, we're dealing with just like the basic logic issues and then it was like what if kino can't swim <laughs> wow what if and then you're like oh oh my god he's just led five thousand people to freedom wow. and when and then you think of the line i'm gonna consider that i'm uh, that i'm already dead yeah because he knows mm -hmm. even if he makes it out there hmm. that, that he's a goner and then you're just like well uh that's that's when the story almost takes over and tells you what it needs to do. You're like, it's obvious that that must be done. Hmm. You know, it's not even a, up for debate. Hmm. Thank so you. It's really about these, these things sort of arise slowly and surely and organically. I wish we were brilliant enough to know that <laughs> from the get go, but you kind of <laughs> have to, yeah.
Hi, uh, my name is Alex from Star Wars Explained. Um, the prison arc, especially episode 10, is one of my new favorite Star Wars stories, and you just broke my heart again talking about it. Uh, it it's so well done. But the first two episodes, oh, the first two episodes are very bleak for a Star Wars story. The balance between despair and hope that has to be tricky to achieve. So how did you achieve that balance? And were there any moments or situations that you considered for Narkeena 5 that you ultimately decided, like, no, that's too far for a Star Wars story? Well, Asana can speak more in terms of, you know, if, if, if anything down the, the road ended up being too far. Although, I, from what I remember us discussing the room and, and working on in the scripts, we pretty much did what we set out to do. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, in terms of, Look, in the previous three episodes, you have the Aldani raid, uh, or I mean, there's one episode that sort of buffers between those, those, but, but if Cassian's been on the Aldani raid, this was a one and done. This is, you know, I want some money in my pocket. I got to get out of here. Maybe I'm a little swayed by the, you know, the manifesto, maybe um, sort of seeing the, you know, the, the way that the Aldanis are being treated and is starting to you know, I know, I know, you know, what, what happened on Ferrix and, and maybe this is starting to make me feel a little more anti-empire, you know, I mean, we know he's anti-empire, but I mean, in a more sort of, in a way with more agency. Um, but then he goes off to Niamos and he, he's doing what he set out to do, which is take the money and run and disappear. Uh, so if you really want to see the process of someone becoming a full-fledged rebel, they he needed to be confronted with the full oppressive weight of the empire. Uh, and and it, it seemed like the very best place to do that is in a prison that kills hope. You know, um, if, if you're trying eventually to get to a new hope, you have to ask yourself the question, uh, um, why is that hope new? Because that hope was being smothered. So let's see it. But then we know we're going to give the audience some friggin' hope by the end of it, at least. So it's worth the journey, and I hope we earn that. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caitlin from Sky Talker. It's so nice to speak with you both today. Um, we've talked some about Cassian and the prison, and I wanted to shift gears and ask about Mon Mothma's story in these episodes. Um, we spent the majority of our time with her within her home and with her family. Can you talk about some of the writing choices that led to telling her story largely from within the home thus far? Well, with Mon Mothma, I mean, first of all, we, we, have, we knew we had the amazing actor Genevieve O'Reilly to, to bring life to this character, and she's so capable. And so uh, uh, we knew we could we could we could we could do almost anything we want there, and she could pull it off. And if you're you're asking yourself questions about people's journeys over the course of this series, um, she's becoming radicalized too. Uh, and 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 with her cousin Vel representing the face of someone who's actually willing to get in the trenches, uh, showing back up to her her home and reminding her that rev that revolution. Uh, actually requires uh, violence and and sacrifice and danger. Seeing her begin to process that and think about sacrifice in a very real way as opposed to an abstract way 
is uh, is is crucial to her story, uh, and and how and 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 is sort of you know making you think about okay, you need people that are willing to die for a revolution or a rebellion. You also need people that are willing to raise the money <laughs> to buy those people the weapons and things they need in order to pull it off. And so it's it's trying to paint the pic the fullness of the picture of, as as sort of you know disparate and kind of frayed and non-organized as the rebellion is at this stage. Uh, how does it begin to coalesce? Um, and but then what does it feel like to be in a senator's shoes who has the burden of that on her shoulders? And and you know and if episode ten really does focus on sacrifice, and you're hearing Luthen talk about how he sacrificed everything. You're seeing people like Kino and many other prisoners who are sacrificing their lives for the greater good so that some of them can escape, if not all of them. You're, you're looking at a potential sacrifice, or at least a sacrifice that's asked of Mon, of, of her daughter. And we don't know what she's going to do yet. Stay tuned. But we, I hope, have done you know, the storytelling up until this point to get the sense that being married at 15th to 15 years old, the parent maybe wasn't her favorite thing in the world. And now she's being asked to consider sacrificing her daughter to the same tradition for the greater good. You know, but so. A, but also, ahead, you know, Mosma, Mon Mosma has been a character that, you know, we have overseen the public persona and, you know, and we have seen a, you know, a very particular Mon Mosma and, and really what Under does, you know, really goes right behind the scenes and takes a character in a different and shows us a very different aspect of her life. I, I mean, I would hope that people were gasping when you realize that she is actually fundraising money for the rebellion. And, you know, and, and, you know, and I think anything, you know, the humanity of her story and what brings her to become a rebel herself is, you know, automatically brings you also back to your families. You know, it is about, you know, her family connection and her birth, you know, made her a senator at the tender age of 16 and dictated a lot of her life. And she has given it to it willingly. It's like, you know, she she took that burden on, you know, like a queen, you know, kind of ascending a, a throne and, and, you know, it had a huge personal impact on her life and the empire crouching down now compromising also what she tried to believe to do through the Senate, you know, is you know, is a human story to tell and, and the family connection, the impact of her marriage, her life as a mother, her old friendships, all those things are actually you know, very much humanity and show you how hard it is to make decisions when somebody pushes you too far that you can no longer, you know, be silent and do nothing. But the human sacrifice is huge. And I think therefore bringing us into her home feels very important um and, and 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 significant you know to tell what her sacrifice is and who she is and and why she acts you know in the way she does when we know the perfect persona that she has to play most of her life hello thank you for your time today i'm brian from pink milk where we talk star wars queerly and um first i want to say thank you for creating cinta and bell for us. Uh, we know in the past that Disney's been reluctant to acknowledge queerness exists. Um, I also want to say thank you to Bo for writing that beautiful dinner scene where her queerness is actively challenged. Many of us queer folks have had to or continue to just sit at those um, 
dinner conversations, especially with Thanksgiving looming here in the United States. Um, I'm curious if there was any difficulties in creating those two characters, and if so, what sacrifices were had to make to get them on screen? Well, uh, luckily, uh, I'm really. <laughs> the, I, I, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there there was no pushback whatsoever, as far as I'm aware, and and uh, you know, I, I I think you know. First of all, let me say all credit goes to Tony, sort of in the vision and conception of this show, and and um, and I think that you know when we were talking about Vel and Cinta early on we weren't necessarily even talking about them being in a relationship. That was a discovery. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we want to, uh, let's let's have this queer couple here at the center of our show. No, um, we, we were, we had, we had Vel, which we knew from the Bible was gonna be a very important character. She's related to Mon and, and, um, and we really liked the tension between being the sort of rich girl from Chandrilla on the one hand, and then eating the grubs, you know, and, and sleeping in a tent out on Aldani. <clears throat> but as we had to populate Aldani, we wanted these to be interesting people, you know, we're not just sort of like, uh, uh, you know, meat for the meat grinder that are going to get, you know, sort of torn up by this raid. Let's really consider each of them. And Cinta started to emerge. Yes. Then kind of organically, yeah, um, they, they had to go out with each other. It just it just became yeah, like, part of the story. We really didn't set out, but it just felt really right for, for, for both of the characters and for the Aldani gang and for our show generally, for for Vel's choices in life and you know, part of why she turned her back on her Shadrillion rich girlness. You know, she clearly had, you know, had to, you know, fight, you know, for for being, you know. It's all the problems that you know that we know that you know that it will be in the galaxy as true as as they are here on Earth. I think, and it's just it just feels right to you know to broaden. Yeah. If we are going, you know, if we are the kitchen sink side, and we're going really, you know, you know, into all these characters and get to know them, you inevitably want to know who they're like and how they live and what makes them taken. You know, not only for this one big moment but generally and I think the well that we meet you know who she is and who she loves and and you know and and is really part of who she became and how she also became the rebel of the course so it was just a very natural thing and we never got any pushback from anybody and thank god it is 2022 and just about time that we can depict you know, all of society, um, rather than only very particular, acceptable, um, you know, traditional ways. I think, though, I think the key, you know, in, 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 and I hope why it works, you know, is that uh, we started with people out in the world trying to foment rebellion. Um, and that's it. And then who are these people? And that we didn't start with this character is gay or this character is straight or this character is bi or this you know character is anything other than let's start with them. Let's drop in with them in action, trying to do something. Um, and then and then if we arrived at that, it happened organically. So it, it it's not what defines the characters. It's just part of who the characters are, you know. And I um, and and I I think that's. Yeah, that's 
that's how it happened. And uh, and then and then once you've made that choice, you just now have to be in the reality of these two characters to say, okay, what is this relationship? What what's right about it? What's wrong about it? What's work? What works? What doesn't? And then what are the dramatic implications down the line? You know. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brad from uh, Friends of the Force. Uh, speaking of Cinta and Bell, um, something Cinta says is, I'm a mirror, you love me because I show you what you need to see, which I thought was an amazing line. Um, likewise, I think fans are loving Andor because it's showing us what we, the viewers, need to see about this point in history. And I think dystopian stories are at their best when they say something about our own world. So uh, for you guys, for both of you, what sort of big ideas were important for you to examine through the show, whether it be this whole season or this this sort of three episode arc, and what do you hope viewers see Andor's truth as? Well, uh, San has been much more front row seat from the very beginning all the way through, so I want to turn it over to her. But but I'll, I will say that Tony walked into the room saying, "I want to think about this first season as the education of Cassie and Andor, right? Like how what does it take to go from being a, a sort of self serving um <clears throat> guy who 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 uh you know may have a distaste for the empire but is ambivalent in terms of doing anything about it too what does he need to go through an experience in order to have a real transformation where he is choosing by choice to to to, to walk towards re rebellion um and and so i think how how does that evolution take place in the human soul? And then you start asking yourself that of all the characters in your in the show, um, what evolutions are they going through, and and how are they becoming the people they are? Um, and and I and I think a big part of this ultimately, I mean, because we know where Rogue One is going to get us, it comes down to sacrifice, and you feel that very strongly in these three episodes. So so I think personally, me, and I can't speak on behalf of Tony, although we've talked about this sort of thing a lot. I, I think the cost of rebellion, the cost of doing something, <laughs> the cost of doing something that you think is right with big stakes, um, what sacrifices are you willing to make? Uh, if these are questions that are swirling around, I think that's um, those are not only thought provoking, but uh, uh, you know, uh, emotionally um, rich. Sana? No, I mean, I can only add to that, but it's also, you know, the the power that an average person can have when you're pushed, in a, you know, to a place where you can't but fight back, you know, and it is a strength to actually move and shift something and, and you know, and be part of rebellion and try to change the world is something in all of us and in everybody and I think that's why the series focuses on a lot of very normal people that are caught up in a very particular you know you know time within the galaxy far far away you know where really you know which are the formative years of the rebellion and and you know and I think what that does to you and how people react is just you know it's really at the heart of it and at the heart of Cassian Andor's journey you know that that who we know is the rebel that will give us life for the cause. And, and you know, so it's kind of a doubt of, but I'm sure Tony Gilbert could it all put it all much better. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is Gabe uh, from Blast Points. And we're huge fans of George Lucas's first feature film, THX 1138. And there appear to be subtle and not so subtle influences in this prison arc to that film. When working on these episodes, was that something that you looked at thematically? 
So quite honestly, the answer is no, not, not consciously at first. Uh, we, we started, as I mentioned before, from a place of how do we do a prison sequence that doesn't feel like every other prison we've seen? Um, and and you know, we, we started talking about this sort of bright white antiseptic space. Uh, we started talking about ways that you could control the inmates without having to use the obvious like gun to the head or what have you. Um, and awesome. so we just started from that very that very simple place. But writers' minds work in strange and mysterious ways. So, <laughs> so I mean, eventually, at a certain point, it, yes, it became obvious, and it, that there were <laughs> some of what we were discussing, and especially as we got into production design, bared some resemblance to THX. Uh, and then once you sort of realize that, you can be intentional about it, of course. Um, Unconsciously, maybe in, in one or all of us, uh, George Lucas's first feature film was bubbling forth and we weren't fully aware of it. I mean, you, as, as a writer, um, uh, you're constantly uh, uh, resurfacing things that have influenced you over your life, uh, whether it's you know experiences you've had or, or other pieces of art that you're not always fully conscious of when, when they're <laughs> surfacing um and then only later do you realize oh yeah wow like there is some and i actually because i i had a i assumed someone was going to ask about this i i went back and watched uh, thx again last night and i was like wow yeah <laughs> holy, holy cow here yeah there's there's definitely <laughs> But um, you know, I, I take that as a good sign. You know, we're we're channeling a little bit of OG George Lucas, and that's never a bad thing, Sana. That's never a bad thing. <laughs> hi, Bo. Hi, Sana. Alden and Nikki here from Octo Radio. He's screens are weird. He's down here. Uh, in the hi. current climate, especially post twenty sixteen, we've seen resistance emerge across art, especially in TV. And we think Andor reflects that, particularly with moments like Luthen's monologue in episode 10. So as a writer and producer, respectively, how has crafting this particular story uh, personally helped you both unpack your own ideas and emotions concerning today's world? God, that's a deep question. How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've I mean, got all day. First, I don't know. <laughs> foremost, uh, Andor is a work of fiction. Right, and um, and we're working within a, a, a beloved and vast pre-existing franchise, uh, and many people have in, interpreted that that franchise back to 1977 in a whole host of ways, um, and and so you know, look, everyone's going to bring their sort of personal history and thoughts and you know uh, and, and 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 opinions about the world <laughs> to the table when when they're working on something, but but really. You know, our 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 goal is to service the characters that we've created in a story that feels right for them within a pre-existing framework and try to do something original with it. Uh, you know, to whatever extent people want to, uh, you know, interpret that, you know, or see it through a particular lens and see it as applicable to anything, you know, uh, past or present. Um, that that's that's wonderful. We, you know, it, it means that maybe you've created something that generates interesting conversations or debates that pe people could have in terms of influences for us. I mean, you could, you know, uh, you know, you, you could look at the French Resistance. You could look at the American Revolution. You could look at a whole host of different things that one could draw comparisons to. And um, but uh, but but honestly, and you know, we're not sitting down trying to think about this in any sort of didactic or essayistic way when we're doing it we're literally like okay 
uh, like, so, you know, what's he like with his mom at breakfast? You know, like, what does that look like? And you just try to build a believable world. And when you build a believable world, naturally, um, you know, and it's a complex and sophisticated world, if you're lucky enough to get to that stage, uh, it, it leaves a lot open to interpretation. And that's a good thing. Sana? Therefore, I think you can really also, you know, in a fantasy and, you know, in a, when you're in, in that, when you're moving in that genre in the galaxy far, far away, if you're creating a, you know, a piece of fiction that is, you know, telling a truthful and complex and political story that is true to that world, I think, you know, it is a real, you know, a lot of people find, you know, emotional connections to characters, to situations, and it, that can, you know, touch them and, and and I think that is a really wonderful thing about fantasy. Hi, this is Pete Fletzer from Around the Galaxy. Luke, the Easter egg placement in Andor has arguably been the most subtle of all the live action Disney Star Wars, but it's also had some of the deepest cuts. How do you work with the story group to make sure fans of the lore are served without excluding the casual fans? Thanks. Uh, I think it's more about just making sure that we don't start from a basis of it being fan service. So it's like, it's <laughs> it's not the first thing I think about. I think the best way to answer that is like, there's a lot of us on the show um, and we're a good mix of people who have worked on Star Wars, who are Star Wars fans and people who have absolutely no context of Star Wars. And so within that, we're all filmmakers. So we're trying to make environments that feel correct in the context that everything's there that should be uh, and that tells a story and gives us a very kind of character-based environment. And then within that, like, okay so what can we put in from star wars that rem not reminds us we're there but actually would be there in that in that environment in the star in the star wars galaxy rather than try and slip things in for fun so lucens gallery is a very good example of something where every artifact in there the whole collection needed to work together to tell a story of lost culture and interesting artifacts from across the galaxy uh, of which some things uh are there that we can recognize from previous movies or shows or, or whatever so um i think that's more the approach it's like never never are we led by by that it's more about um you know just things that would be that enrich that environment on that level should be there does that make sense <laughs> that's a good answer I don't know. completely that's great okay thank you Hi, Luke. I'm Gustavo from Triad of the Force. And my question had to do with Coruscant and the designs that had to go into Coruscant. Because when we go into that planet, we see that there's three main areas that we're telling our stories in. It's uh, Cyril's mom's apartment, the ISB, and then Mon Mothma's apartment. And I feel it's a really big contrast, this Coruscant that we see in Andor versus the Coruscant that we saw in Attack of the Clones, which was very bright saturated colors, lots of neon. It was a very welcoming environment. And when we see like these three locales, it's quite the opposite to an extent. There's brutalist architecture, a very minimal modernism, and then some art deco in uh, Mon Mothma's apartment. So what was the process of design to like do an anti-Coruscant, so to speak, that then framed the themes of each character's story? You've almost answered your own question there, but um, <laughs> the... Uh... I think this is a good one for my, my, Michael to answer as well, because I think what he did with the costumes in Coruscant was phenomenal. But, so, they, you know, but the, um, okay, so basically, I don't think, I mean, you probably, I'm not a massive fan of how Coruscant looked in the prequels. So, and I think the thing with that is it's just environment background. 
So uh, what we wanted to do, it's, it's, it's literally the hardest thing and I could talk for hours about why it's hard to do. And if we're gonna do it, we have to do it well. So, uh, and you don't want it to, every environment in Coruscant to be told via CGI, you know, lead element. So, uh, and equally when you're composing those CGI shots, you don't want them to feel like they wouldn't exist in a real world. So the, um, the, the kind of core principle of Coruscant is its height. It's verticality, it's three miles high, and it's sort of dichotomy is made up of uh, literally told, you know, that it's sort of upper at the top and the middle and middle Coruscant, the lower kind of in lower Coruscant. We don't touch on lower Coruscant that much. So um, it, it, it's then it becomes character led, which is interesting. So, and then you want to look at cities like Tokyo and New York and like what what is a vertical what is the language of a vertical city and what makes that interesting that's kind of the approach so it was never about trying to make coruscant look like coruscant or ralph macquarie's coruscant or anything like that it's a, it should it should smell like that it should have that nostalgia but it should fit in star wars it shouldn't feel futuristic or sci-fi and yet it, I want it to. I want to understand it as a, a real place that could exist, and equally, we don't necessarily need to always be away from it. We want to inhabit areas within it. So it's it's really complicated. But essentially, the principles are materials. Like say, it should be monochromatic. It should be concrete. It should be steel. It should be glass. It should be things like this. It's hard. It's it's inhumane. It's um. It's there's a total lack of organic material there, and you just sort of make these decisions and you build it up, and you realize what starts to work and what doesn't work, and and then Ed's is a great one because I I mean the idea behind it is like I reckon she bought that apartment 20 years ago she had a view across Coruscant and then the whole city grew up around her and, and it got lost like she did uh and and it's got that kind of baker-like cream versus say the clinical sterility of the ISB or Mon's sort of it's kind of like Mon's place is almost like an embassy building that was given to her so it's got values of her Chandrillian culture and yet also it's it's got this sort of uh, lack of uh, I don't know comfort that brings with Coruscant. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I really do think you should ask Michael that question because um, I think we both talked a lot about that planet in particular. I think from my point of view, um, we did what we do on all planets. You know, Luke and I uh, talked really de deep dived into the. The, the culture and we wanted to build actual real authentic societies and not just like random colors and textures for each planet that we thought about you know the culture what materials and technologies would they have how is it a stratified society is it a unified society you know we thought Coruscant would be very diverse there would be people from all over the galaxy there it's the seat of government there's a senate there there's all sorts of embassies but within, we also go deep into the core of Coruscant. So we see the different societies. Uh, we see the people that might, you know, service the buildings, the lower Coruscant. We go deeper and deeper until people are engaging in more nefarious activities. And so we wanted to represent that entire spectrum of culture. It's not like you just go to the rental house and you buy six of these things and you dive in different colors and that's your culture. We just wanted to think about every background player would have a backstory and uh, a reason for being on screen. Hi, I'm Chase, AKA That Gay Jedi. And um, I, Michael, my question is for you. I remember hearing a story that you had about Amy Adams in 
and her character in American Hustle and sort of this stain that you came across and found in a vintage dress that ended up becoming sort of a perfect story moment for the script and for the story. Um, so I was wondering if there are any happy accidents in your costuming process for Andor? Ooh, that's a good question. Let's mm -hmm. see. Happy accidents. I mean, I think it was actually a little bit, there weren't actually so many accidents on this on this set, were there, uh, Luke, in the sense that everything was much more, there was this endless discussion and thinking about things. So I think it was, American Hustle was very of the moment and organic and um, let's just give this a go. But the, when you're working in the Star Wars universe, uh, everything really has to have a logic uh, and a reason for being on on, on camera. You know, there's going to be a lot, a lot of scrutiny uh, over every uh, square inch of the frame, as, as you guys are very familiar <laughs> with this concept. Uh, and so you want to make sure that uh, things are there for a reason. So I, I would say there wasn't so much... Uh, accents but just uh lots of lots of deep thinking hmm. thank you hi um i really love the prison arc i think narkina 5 is very different from what i think most people would imagine a prison to be it's bright it's clean there's no bars there's no real guard presence yet it's still completely oppressive so how did you design the prison and the costumes the entire look to sell this idea that the inmates are being constantly monitored when in reality, nobody's listening. And what does the design of oppression look like to you? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, and the prison for me was always like a, a cross between an abattoir and a laboratory. Uh, and yet also is, a, is a, like a labor camp, essentially, uh, that you can't escape from. It's like Alcatraz, but if Alcatraz was a lab. <laughs> so um, it, it, I just find that more interesting. I mean, it would, right from the beginning when we talked about a prison and we looked at panopticons and things like that and um, that logic of how we could make the organic material of the people be the thing that turns the machine, uh, they're the disposable element was what, what that came from. So, um, I think it's just way more interesting to go with something more sterile and, and stark. Uh, it's more sinister, it's more creepy, it's more THX 1138, which was a good reference when, which we started with for the, the prison. So uh, then um, say something grungy and obvious for, for a prisoner. I think, I don't know much you've seen, uh, but as that builds that story, uh, it will make more sense as well. Um, uh, again, it's I, I actually really love working, making white sets as well. I think they they photograph beautifully. I think things pop more. I think they have a sinister nature, which I think is was just I don't know. It just it just felt more interesting for that part of the show when you look at how we break down these blocks and you know the earthiness of Ferrix against the sort of organicness of the Highlands, which is like our version of the desert, and then this kind of trap sterility of the prison. Uh, yeah, it, it it started there and then it evolved and 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 um, uh, uh, and I know my, my, Michael is the same really. I mean, like, we yeah. Sorry, Michael, carry on. I think for us, we Luke and I sort of talked about you know how do those who wield the power like the empire how do they, how do they use environment and color to oppress and intimidate and disorientate? And I think this palette of white on white 
is like there's nowhere to hide it's quite horrific you you lose your sense of depth because all you can see is white on white so it's you're sort of you're disempowered uh, by this soul soul destroying uh environment so we spent lots of time also developing a fabric that felt very utilitarian disposable it feels like they just peel them off at the end of the day they're treated like cattle hose down sterilized and then they're given an, a fresh one for the next day so i kind of like all of these tiny little details that would eat away at you psychologically as a as a prisoner um they they were sort of brought into the details of the costume thank you Hello, Luke and Michael. This is Sarah and Richard from Skywalking Through Neverland. Andor's got such a, a great visual style. Very, very unique. It's Star Wars without being Star Wars. How close did you want to get to what we've seen already in Star Wars? And what motifs did you know you wanted to work in when creating the world of Andor? Hmm. I don't think we ever started that way around. I think when I first met Tony, it was almost like, okay, we're going to make a Star Wars show, but it's it's not going to be like any Star Wars show that you've made, you've watched kind of thing. So, which is exciting anyway, it's just challenging. It's a, it's a really hard when you start realizing that that means going into people's apartments and checking out their bathrooms and going to work with them. And, uh, <laughs> and so um, what do we want to keep? I think it was more like keeping the, okay. So keeping the tangibility of the original three movies, and then looking at Rogue One, uh, the sort of grittiness of that, finding a sense of modernity that that could compete with other shows and also make uh, work with the drama and the writing of what Tony puts together and the character-led sort of drama, but maintaining the sense of nostalgia that I think Star Wars holds so well without wanting it to become like, and I'm not saying other shows do this at all, but that was, that was partly a fear. You know, it's very easy to slip into selecting things as if from a catalogue of Star Wars in order for it to fill Star Wars. I don't think any of us ever wanted to do that. Uh, I certainly know Michael and I didn't want to do that. It was about enhancing what was there uh, and then fleshing it out to make it feel uh, like you really could walk and live in this universe with these people um, and hopefully forget about it at times, forget that maybe you're watching Star Wars uh, and then be reminded now and again. That was kind of the, the goal anyway. And Michael, for the costumes, if you could weigh in, that would be amazing. Yeah, I think we knew as soon as we read the scripts that we would have to take a, a new approach to our, our to creating the visuals for this um, project. You know, all of uh, Tony's characters are so, you know, detailed and complex, messed up. You know, it's, they couldn't afford to be just like two-dimensional costuming. Every sort of detail and layer uh, had to be thought about. You know, the, the choices would be practical character driven and not ornamental or uh, added on. So, which really uh, worked for me because that's the way that I, I love to work as well. But there was certainly, you know, a, what incredible established costume language there is for Star Wars already. 40 years of incredible design of some of the most talented costume designers on the planet sort of contributing their vision to, to the, the what a Star Wars world looks like. So it was, you know, amazing to have an opportunity to take my, have my own take on, on that world. And so we we wanted to definitely, you know, use the presence of things like the established uniforms and the armor to ground us really firmly into the Star Wars um, world. They, they would do a lot of work for us to sort of show the audience that yes, this is a world that they knew. 
Um, but then that gave us the opportunity to leap up with some of our other characters and um, try some some new ideas and show audiences um, uh, some some new compelling and surprising uh, costume ideas. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. Hi, I'm Brandon from Talking Bay 94. It's great to talk with you both. Um, I would love to, one of the things that stands out to me from other Star Wars things is we see a lot of personal rooms and personal belongings in this show, right? And I think it's kind of a, a cross with a lot of these characters, right? You see Cassian's room, you see Cyril's, you see all these like actual personal belongings. And I'd be interested with both the production design of it all, but then also feeling comfortable in someone's apartment with the costuming and with actually like laying out how someone is in their own home rather than in an ISB or in a security office. How do you approach that? And what were you trying to communicate with some of these characters when we delve into their personal lives? Um, I mean, like any project, I think you try and get a sense of the character into the space. So uh, uh, I think Mar sort of Marvis, for example, the idea behind that was uh, you had the sense of a home that was fully functioning, you know, when Cassian was younger, when she raised her and he's grown up and he's kind of grifting and she's lost her husband and the business is shut down. And there's that sort of centralizing around her, her chair, <laughs> that that's her world is literally getting smaller and she can't cope with the place in this time. And then I was saying with Edie's apartment, I think, you know, it's almost like she bought it was box fresh. You could get upgrades and plugins to the apartment. And then over time, it's just, it's aged and become a bit more Baker-like over time. And it, I mean, Rebecca as well said, does a really fantastic job of just sort of getting under the skin of what people would have. Cause it was kind of paper and can't do the normal sort of texture of life. So we have to be very selective and actually more thoughtful. Like, so in Edie's we're really cooked into this idea that she has this home salon in the corner, which you never see in season one, <laughs> but it's there. And she sort of, it's like a Star Wars version with a sort of like hair, hair do kind of set up. All these things that actually feel um, relatable and yet also in a Star Wars language. I think, you know, it, it's an endless conversation. It's a fantastic question actually, but it, yeah, it, it's always character, it always starts from the character. And I think from my point of view, um, I agreed. I have to chime in with that. It, it starts with the character. And I, I mean, the joy of working with Luke is that I feel like you design spaces like the character would design the spaces. It's like you you think so much about who they are and what they want to project with their interiors. And I, I try to do the same with um, with with the costumes. Um, so, you know, if it's the difference between wearing something tight and structured and how that makes you feel compared to something like layers that you can disappear in like we see Cassian at the beginning disappearing into his clothes hiding then his arc throughout the, the series is to become closer to the hero that we know from Rogue One so you know his subtly little bit by little bit his his coats become a bit more tailored he's less hiding he's revealing himself a little more perhaps longer lines the, the, the shoulders square out so it's this very subtle um, subliminal transformation that that he's going through. Um, so it's it's things like that, like how how do clothes make me feel? What do they say about what I'm trying to achieve in this scene? How I'm feeling on this day? All of those very personal tweaks I um, I incorporate into my costume design work. 
thanks very much, uh, James and Jill on News here. Um, so to Michael, I'd like to ask, please, about Cyril's unique costuming and um, the way that he tailors all his own um, costumes, because, I mean, obviously there's a big thing made about that in the show, and um, I'm just wondering if there's anything more to that, because it's, I mean, obviously it's very much part of his character, but it, it comes across and it's, you know, and then to Luke, obviously, um, I loved your work on Chernobyl and, um, you know, that was that was incredible. And I see quite a lot of what you did there is very, very similar in Andor because you've got you're seeing people up front and personal. Some of the things that you've already described. So how do, how do you go about coming from a show like that um, to Star Wars? Um, what's what's the juxtaposition there and, and 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 how did you go about that into into you know coming off something as big as that where you're telling a real story into something like this michael do you want to go first i'll, I'll go first um i'm really glad you picked up on the primo uniforms because i really enjoyed creating them usually uniforms are like that exactly that they're uniform and they everyone looks the same in them but with preox I wanted to explore that, you know, even within a uniform, you can, people find ways of expressing themselves. And so we have the schlumpy guys that are working out in the bullpen, those jaded office workers that are just like not at all engaged. And they are, we, we sort of um, enzyme washed their costumes. So they were faded out and not ironed and um, no pride in their appearance. At the other end of the spectrum, you have Cyril who, tailors he makes his costumes he he makes small tweaks of them personalizes them so that they're more expressive of what he wants to project uh, and who he wants to be so he's got this very fastidious approach to costuming so we made his costume subtly more um i guess uh, more rigid more sculpted uh freshly pressed a slightly brighter color so even within this world of uniforms we're hopefully able to do a bit of storytelling about the different people in the scene brilliant thank you um, okay so uh, i guess the short answer is every the process is the same with every project whether whatever the whatever it is um, the similarities between doing a project like Chernobyl and, and, and a Star Wars project generally, I think is that it's, there's a lot of research. It's still, it's almost like researching a period or an event. Um, there's a lot, I mean, there's an endless amount in Star Wars. It's, it's, it's a life of its own. It's, it really is. It's like, so you want to distill that, but you don't want to get lost in it. Um, in the same way with Chernobyl, you want to just a mood without getting lost in being documentarian completely uh so i mean chernobyl's although fantastically rewarding incredibly hard but um the difference there was i guess we had five very fleshed out scripts when we started star wars tony was taking it on at the same time i just started so we were we were literally building it at the same time as he was writing um but still i think yeah, it's it's the same principle. So it, it's uh, it's about you know yeah, it's, it's about character and environment and, and and storytelling, and then it's about mood and tone. And so with Chernobyl, it was like you could tell the story a thousand different ways, but it has to have a tone, um, uh, which you know otherwise yeah you can make a documentary, but we're not we're making drama. And the same with this, it's like we wanted this to have an almost sort of doc or journalistic logic so you approach it like 
you're dealing with building up every character's reality and yet at the same time we're making uh, obviously fiction <laughs> obviously a drama so um in that sense i don't think there's any difference i i, I obviously the material's a lot lighter well at times uh <laughs> on star wars but the uh and uh and the worlds are much greater and more varied um it, it it both were rabbit holes to be honest <laughs> from a design point of view and i think the biggest thing they that they have in common is that i never felt like i you only ever run out of time i could layer these sets for much longer i could create you know i'd love to go further but you run out of time and you have to shoot them at some point um and uh so i don't know it, it is a it's actually been hugely enjoyable to work on or play in the sandpit of Star Wars because uh, it's not something I expected to do. Certainly not something I expected to do next. Um, yeah, I do really appreciate how different it is in the terms of its actual source material, um, but also how actually freeing it's been to be able to do it in a way that is okay. But I don't. I mean, like oh, I'm going to say, we wanted it to be fresh, you know, and I, hopefully we've achieved some semblance of that. That that's been both the challenge and the satisfaction, if that makes sense. Great, thank you. Evening all, Mark from Fanthatrax here. Um, there's a lot of, hello, there's a lot of real world locations in Andor. You filmed in Cleveland. There's stuff around by the Barbican. I was walking around the other day and found some of the places there. When you're, or when location scouting's done and your work's done, what's the consideration for making it work as a location, work for ILM, work for easy access? Is there a lot of different things you've got to factor in or do you just literally look and go, I like that corridor, I want, to, I want us to film down there and work in, how does it work? Um, certainly not the latter. <laughs> I think it's, again, it goes back to like where we, when we put this project together, we were offering things up as well as designs we were offering up locations. I love working on and building on location and we ideally would have done a lot more. It's quite hard to take such a large unit on location, but it's also quite hard, especially when you're doing a pandemic. So we we kind of ended up building a lot more than maybe we initially intended. But um, there was sort of some basic principles, really. I didn't want to do a desert, but I wanted something where the landscape spoke for itself. And so like, well, what if we had a planet that felt like the Scottish Highlands, you know? So that was a good starting point as a, and then we were looking at dams and we found one in particular that always just felt like such a blight on the landscape um they're gonna love me for saying that uh that uh it just felt very imperial as a kind of logic and so that whole Aldani sequence came based around that idea that there, that was an imperial stronghold there and so on and so on and so on and, and so um it's it's actually quite a big question because Coruscant like I said was one of the hardest things we had to do and I, at Barbican I've always felt had the both the weight and the texture that felt right for a mega city like Coruscant, but also felt right for a certain level at the mid-level of Coruscant. Um, obviously there is work within there, but we never sort of approached the location on the basis of, you know, we didn't concept something. And Moen, who's the VFX supervisor, who's, who's like literally with us from day one, like he is a massive part of this show, has great taste. Um, so it's never led by that. It's always about how can we enhance this real place or how can we put it within the wider world of Coruscant? How can we do shots that you would do in a real city and not in a CGI environment? So it's like, it's a huge question, but um, 
you know, like I always said that the best place to shoot Coruscant would be Paris because you've got both the scale and the sort of uh, like uh, the style of certain aspects of Coruscant. I mean, it's slim pickings in London, I've got to tell you. But uh, uh, and then and then and then and then I don't know. I mean, uh, is that getting close to answering your question? <laughs> I think so. It just struck me as we were walking around. There was, you know, you'd literally turn around. There was one corridor there that we turned around when Vel and Clayla met. And then there's the steps when they had the meeting. And then you walk a little bit and there's the corridor and you just picked like a doorway, literally mm. just a doorway and everything else was changed. I'm just thinking of you guys walking around thinking that doorway looks good, that corridor looks good. <laughs> I mean, know? basically, yeah, with the Barbican, yeah, you're a little more limited, you're a little bit more like uh, what's the targeted, I suppose. Yeah. But I guess what I was always looking for when piecing together Coruscant was journeys. So again, it wasn't like, oh, let's stand here and have a conversation with the city in the background or something like yeah. that. So. Barbican is actually gives you a lot in terms of journeys. Um, the Cyril going home uh, is one of my favourites. I think it's at um, oh, I can't remember the name of the place now. Um, that's in London, and it's uh, it, it is it's a, it's like a brutalist estate. And um, yeah, I mean, all we really did was sort of make it go much further down and and give it that elevation and uh, uh, and and that sort of sense of depression i suppose but um yeah it's it's really hard like i want to shoot more on location off more often than not we pull back from doing a location we use in location as an inspiration i mean for me location scouting is one of the most inspiring things to do but the um yeah i mean look our location manager rich he's sort of like he's worked very hard to find things that feel or at least have the bones of star wars and then yeah. we kind of go from there <laughs> <laughs> magic thanks for that thank you well first of all i'm ready now for the british spin-off podcast uh with both of you guys yeah, <laughs> uh alden and nikki here with octa radio and we're we're both so interested in the growth that's happening in both of your respective fields luke and michael um and how that's expanding yeah so like with the volume for example dominating so many sort of entertainment conversations uh, what are some perhaps uh, under-discussed artistic or technological innovations in the world of production and costume design that, that we may not know about, but played a huge role in creating Andor? Oh, Michael, do you want to go first? Because I know you've got a... Um, yeah, interesting question. I think for me, because we were kind of leaning um, heavily into the the, the DNA of, of, this, of this, the look of the Star Wars um, established costume language it's it's actually quite an analog costume you know approach uh, well it's a mixture in fact like there is things that would have been groundbreaking in 1977 uh as far as the costumes go um that seem not so groundbreaking now um but we we kind of liked to have that as a starting point we we had a similar approach with this one we there were lots of handmade like old school analog created costumes but we also have a fantastic uh, costume props department that is using new technologies new new materials um to create um mostly armored elements or um you know small sculpted elements that you see on costuming uh there's lots of 3d printing that happens scanning of things and then adapting things uh, we're constantly trying new urethanes and different uh, materials that might make more comfortable armor. We made a um, a lot of the the problem with the original stormtroopers is that they um they changed color over over time. The and the the white of the originals turned yellow over the years. 
and and it was also quite rigid and difficult to do certain stunts like moves in. So yeah, we explored some new new materials to make our um, stormtroopers that would stay white forever and that would be um, comfortable for our stunt people to wear. Uh, and uh, so yeah, it's a very beautiful and organic mixture of uh, analog and 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 new costume making uh, techniques. I would so fully agree with that. I'd say we're um, back, not back to basics. No, we're not doing anything groundbreaking in the art department here, but uh, <laughs> I think just it was an active choice not to use the volume. It doesn't suit our goal. Uh, it certainly doesn't suit Tony's writing. So um, uh, the idea is to be on the ground and moving around with the characters as much as possible and not creating sort of spaces for scenes to happen in, if that makes sense. So actually it is something that actually can do more with a long episodic drama like this or multi-episodic drama you build just bigger sets that you can just connect them up i mean it, it's it's sort of um i think ferrix was comprised of almost 30 sets they're all largely out on the back lot as one large composite set so you could literally walk down north street round onto the main street down there round to marvers into marvers you know it it, it, it that that process was although complex was very enjoyable and i suppose the most uh, sort of modern part of that is is that we, like with any of the sets i would usually just start by designing the whole thing mm -hmm. so design the city design the prison in full design and then start to break it down and what we want to use how what bits we want to build at least then we understand the full geography we understand right. our rules um and i think that filters through even if you don't see it all you you don't it doesn't hopefully jar at any point so um then i mean and then a huge element of that is like you know if you're going to go that step we, we sort of model everything it was just actually that was another thing we did on chernobyl we built the whole power plant and sort of worked out what we actually needed to physically make and um and um so i built it in 3d should i say not <laughs> and uh and then uh and likewise uh with ferrix and then we can kind of previs from that so a director when we've got many directors can start to actually plan because you know the set's not going to be standing there for them to plan on um there's not really we don't follow a pipeline like they do over in on manhattan beach for for these for the volume shows at all uh, we don't have that aspect we're much more i suppose analog is 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 kind of you know it, then that feeds into what we wanted to achieve you know we want we wanted it to feel a little bit like the original movies in the sense that it was tangible more like that so um and yeah I, 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 I don't think there's anything groundbreakingly new about what we're doing other than that we are trying to do it um more uh i don't know trying to i guess trying to compile all the resources to make put more on the screen but not but but make it feel like it's less there's Someone no, asked there's that there's earlier no yet, like the Luke Hall technique has not been coined yet. <laughs> I mean, if there is, I haven't figured it out yet. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I mean, I'm still working out how to do my job with every project. And that's part of the beauty of my job and why I enjoy it. I think once I've figured out how to do it, I'll be bored of it. So uh, it's, um, it's no, it, it, like I said, it, it, it's the complexity with this is that you've got so many other facets. You've got creatures, special effects, sliding doors, you know, um, vehicles that that have to hover or whatever so 
everything has to be designed. I think that's the, the thing that sometimes gets for, forgotten with this. We're not, like I said, we're in our ambition to not select from the catalog. We have set ourselves a huge task that everything has to be designed and made. So, um, and that there's no uh, mystery to it. I just have a very good team. <laughs> <laughs> very very skilled and clever people around me uh, and and i uh, yes i'm i'm hugely humbled to them for being able to achieve a show like handle well that is it for the interviews for now who knows like here's hoping we get invited to more <laughs> yeah as we as we say in spanish tan triste cuando se acaba so sad when it's I over see. it's mm -hmm. uh you know it was, it was really fun experience again you know talking to all of these amazing amazing creators these creatives uh, it's so cool it's something that you know i hope keeps happening like you know i'm 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 happy if this is it and it never happens again because i never yeah we never thought that this was going to happen to try at but uh yeah. you know we're crossing our fingers that it keeps happening because we're having a lot a lot of fun with this <laughs> i know it's it's incredible to actually get this behind the scenes look before the behind the scenes before, edition of stuff exactly. comes out. I know it's it's a completely different experience. I never thought we were gonna yeah. have this level of access to something we love so much. So and this might be actually I'm gonna I'm gonna like uh you know toot our own horn here. This might be the only time that people are really gonna get this much behind the scenes content because you know they're not really doing uh, physical media releases of yeah. like the the shows and whatnot. So we're not getting like those bonus DVDs like we used to in the past. So maybe this yeah. is it, guys. Like, you have to tune in to try out the force to get all your behind-the-scenes goodies. So <laughs> keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> so we hope that you enjoyed. We hope that we get invited to more stuff so we can keep bringing it to you as well. Yes. And remember that we are Triad of the Force. You can find us wherever podcasts can be found. Just search Triad of the Force and you will find us. Like, subscribe, ring that bell, leave a comment. You like this, you don't. See if there's other people you'd be interested in us interviewing. If we can actually get, you know, more yeah. invitations through that, go ahead. Just let us know. <laughs> let us know so that we can pray because that's basically all we can do. <laughs> so until next time, we will be with you towards the end of Andor and then eventually going back to regular scheduling programming because we just love Star Wars in general too. So mm -hmm. until and next other time. <laughs> And other things. Yeah, there's still a lot of things that we need to discuss that we haven't had enough time to. We'll get to that. There's we'll a lot of nerddom greatness out there that we'll get to. So don't worry about it. And you can always suggest what else you want us to talk about. So yeah, let us know. Until next time, may the force be with you. Mm -hmm.